0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan.
1: I'm Catherine Brobeck.
0: And this week, we are discussing a novel, and that novel is Murder in Mesopotamia, our latest Poirot.
1: Catherine Brobeck,
0: give us a little soupçon. About the publishing history of this one.
1: Not actually very much interesting about this publishing yeah. history. Uh, it was published on July 6, 1936, in the UK, uh, subsequently in the US. So, yeah.
0: The soup soniest soup song that, that there ever was. Indeed. Um, all right, well, let's get right to the victim. We do technically have two victims here, but we have a main victim, and I would like to tackle this one because don't get alarmed, Catherine. But I have a little bit of autobiography to cover when it comes to this victim because I this is a little, hear a little those bit words and <laughs>
1: I get sometimes a little bit alarmed. But uh, you know what? Go for it.
0: Get out your smelling salts because <laughs> you, you you might need them. Kemper is on an autobiography an autobiography tear. So Louise Leidner is our victim here, and she's an older lady. The noted several times. Although no, I want to be
1: very clear, I think she's thirty five.
0: I, well, for Christy, I mean, remember <laughs> Catherine Gray, Mystery of the Blue Train, thirty-three, not no longer in the first bloom of her uh, life. Never forget.
1: Uh, Never oh, forget. I, I, I don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it is at least noted that though she be super old and in her mid-30s, she has a certain attraction and charisma that draws men to her. And that's part of the way in which she is a troublemaker. She likes to set people against each other. And she's also possibly a mental case. But we will get to that in a second because Louise Knight Leidner, who is murdered by a blow to the head and is our main victim for this novel, is very very much based on a specific person. And this does not happen very often in Christie. The other significant time where it happened was in, yes, we reference this novel pretty much every episode, The Man in the Brown Suit. <laughs> and that was with uh, Sir Eustace Pedler, who was based on this Major Belcher who Agatha Christie toured the world with. The difference there is that Major Belcher, being a larger-than-life person, actually requested that he be put in Agatha Christie's next novel and even suggested the title. He was all about it. In this case, Louise Leibner is based on a woman who did not request being put in the novel, and, you know, we can imagine that (laughs) given her depiction here. (laughs) Um, That woman is named Catherine Woolley, and Catherine and Leonard Woolley were a married archaeology couple, and you see where this is going here. They are, in fact... The couple who introduced Agatha Christie to her second husband, Max Mallowan, after her divorce and all of the sort of hard time in her life, she went out to this archaeological site because she was just curious about it. And it was at a place called Ur, and that is very much the setting that we have here in Murder in Mesopotamia. I mean, she describes it very specifically because it is a real place. She calls it Urimja here, but this is the archaeological site of Ur where there were major excavations going on, and she went there for a season after her divorce as a single woman, and it was very unusual for a woman to be able to do that, especially when Catherine Woolley was the lady in charge at the site, because Catherine Woolley, much like Louise Leidner, her fictional counterpart, did not like the ladies so much. Um, <laughs> she liked to have men around her, but she was a huge fan of the murder of Roger Aykroyd. And because of that, she invited Agatha Christie with open arms, and she and Agatha Christie actually became great friends. Though, in her autobiography, Agatha Christie does not pull any punches about what a difficult sort of person that she was. And I just wanted to quote what she says here, because it's quite striking... What a similar character she was. So she writes, Catherine Woolley, who has become one of my great friends in the years to come, was an extraordinary character. People have been divided always between disliking her with a fierce and vengeful hatred and being entranced by her, possibly because she switched from one mood to another so easily that you never knew where you were with her. She was capable of rudeness. In fact, she had an insolent rudeness when she wanted to. That was unbelievable. But if she wished to charm you, she would succeed every time. And Max Mallowan himself actually confirmed in his memoirs that Louise Leidner was in fact based on Catherine Woolley, and he wrote, "Fortunately, and perhaps unexpectedly, Catherine did not recognize certain traits which might have been <laughs> taken as applicable to herself, and took no umbrage in this book, which I think is pretty funny and quite telling." Or
1: horrifying.
0: <laughs> I will direct anyone who is interested in Catherine Woolley to check out this blog called. Monkey Strums the British Museum. That's right. Monkey Strums the British Museum, which is all about various lectures that were given at the British Museum. And there was this lecture given in 2012 all about Catherine Woolley that is fascinating. So Google that, all sorts of stuff to learn about her. She, like Louise Leiter, by the way, had a first marriage that ended in disaster. Her first husband killed himself six Mm -hmm. months into their marriage. Mm -hmm. And there is a theory... That the reason why is because Catherine Woolley suffered from complete androgen insensitivity, which would mean that she was genetically male. I'm not making this up, I promise. With both X and Y chromosomes, but that her body was insensitive to male hormones so that she appeared female. Intercourse would actually be extremely painful. And that's probably something that she did not discover about herself, given that this was happened in 1919 until she got married. The other thing, and this is a little bit pertinent, again, just to the Woolies, who, by the way, as a couple, the 13 Problems, our beloved 13 Problems, Miss Marple stories, were dedicated to Leonard and Catherine Woolley, since they were the means by which Agatha found her second husband. But Catherine Woolley agreed to marry Leonard only on the condition that the marriage would never be consummated. Ooh. That is a fact. And a year after Agatha had met them, he actually filed for divorce on the grounds that the marriage but was never consummated, which sounds like I, I guess he decided he wasn't cool with that after all. I don't it's know. Year, but I- they, they actually did remain married until she died of multiple sclerosis. One of the main reasons for that speculation is that her first husband killed himself after a doctor had consulted with Catherine Woolley, uh, or I believe her, her name would have been Catherine Keeling at that time. And the speculation is that whatever the doctor told him was so shocking and so upsetting to him that he committed suicide when he poisoned himself in Giza in Egypt. Ugh. Anyway, we'll never know. But it's, it's interesting that, again, this is another sort of life is stranger than fiction thing. I mean, the Woolies are fascinating and it's much more mysterious than the Leidners on the page, I think. So anyone who's interested, go wild with that. There
1: is another victim, at least.
0: I promise she's not based on anyone real.
1: <laughs> Miss Ann Johnson, who is a frumpy English. English. English woman who's working at the site, and she is later murdered really gruesomely by hydrochloric acid.
0: By the way, I love talking about the things I remember most clearly on these rereads from decades later. That is what I remembered most from this novel.
1: Yeah, it's uh, It's horrible. Really, really horrible. So uh, she, another victim... Uh, and then yep. I also think that you could make a really fine argument that the other victim here are uh, you know, antiquities,
0: <laughs> Native cultures being plundered. Uh, <laughs> plundered, lots of lots of yeah. colonial pilfering going on here under our, yeah, b- a our lot of very noses. casual
1: a, a lot of very casual mentions of like, oh, look at this child's skeleton,
0: Yeah, in any case. Let's talk about our suspects, which is a substantial list, as it often is. The first is Eric Leidner, who is Louise's husband, and he is a Swedish-American archaeologist, very much devoted to his wife and also very much devoted to his work.
1: And then there's Richard Carey, who is um, Eric Leidner's good friend and also apparently a very handsome fellow archaeologist.
0: We are, of course, told, since he is a handsome man in Nag the Christie novel, that he is tan <laughs> with blue eyes and <laughs> lean and brown. I can't. (laughs) I just can't. Let's move on. Next suspect, we have the Mercados, Marie and Joseph. They are also at the dig. They are married. They come as a pair. She's a mean gossip. We're given to believe that she's sort of cheap looking, essentially. And yeah, he there's is some
1: um, by the way, racial overtones there too. Yes. Let's be clear. <laughs> yes there
0: are. yes there are. Joseph Mercado is a bit older. He's also slightly forlorn, troubled seeming sort of a man.
1: David Emmett is another man at the site. There are some very distinctive female characters in this and the male mm-hmm. characters honestly are Shitty. much not interesting. I
0: totally agree with that, and I had a really hard time keeping the young male archaeologists apart as I was reading this book, which is never a good sign. No. But I do have a little theory that David Emmett in particular is sort of based on Max Mallowan. This is how she describes Max Mallowan when she met him at that dig at Ur. He was a thin, dark young man and very quiet. He seldom spoke, but was perceptive to everything that was required of him. That sounds like David Emmett.
1: It definitely does, but that's also why he does not make an interesting novel character.
0: No, he does not. Next, we have Bill Coleman, who's another one of the young male archaeologists at the site.
1: He's the annoying one.
0: Yeah, he's described as a PG Woodhouse character, I believe, because yep. he is he's jubilantly British.
1: Then we have Carl Ryder, who's a photographer at the site.
0: And then Father Lavigny, who is the expert in ancient languages and supposedly a monk, although it's noted very early on that this seems somewhat odd. And this, I promise, is the last real-life counterpart that I'm going to bring up. But there actually was a father at Ur when agatha christie was there so she was also basing this on real life it was a father burroughs who was a jesuit priest and epigraphist so
1: clearly that is the right i mean it would make much more sense like it totally makes sense that there could be a priest there it's that it seems like everybody on the site is under the impression that at some point he was a monk which would make it extremely weird i think that he was there
0: Yeah, I almost feel like she's poking a little bit of fun, though, at the Protestant fascination and lack of awareness as to how Catholicism might work in the details, because they're like... Does that make sense? I don't really know. It's cool. Whatever. I guess he's a monk. I don't know. Well,
1: it, it turns out he's not, yeah. but um, we'll get there. There's also Dr. Riley and his daughter, Sheila. I would say that we would list them as suspects, but it would be an extremely odd choice since Dr. Riley has sponsored this narrative that we're reading. So even though Sheila is kind of a piece of work...
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Neither of them is actually ever a suspect in this.
0: Amy Leatherin, who we'll get to in one moment, describes Sheila Riley as a cocksure little minx. Yes. One of my, One of my favorite <laughs> favorite descriptions of the character in any it's Christie actually, novel you know,
1: i was like i'm gonna start
0: calling you a cocksure little minx oh, Catherine. Well, no i'm not
1: you know <laughs> I mean. you can call
0: me a cocksure little minx <laughs> and
1: then in turn we have our narrator who is also ultimately not a suspect that's amy Leatherin, who is an english nurse and if she were our murderer it would really be a strange choice here.
0: Right, and I feel like that's what's ultimately behind that odd framing that does really take Dr. Riley and his daughter out of the running as suspects.
1: Right. Because
0: it's like, he commissions the narrative from her, so we know from the get-go we're not in a Roger Aykroyd situation here, Correct. where Amy Leathern's gonna be like, I did
1: it! Right. Although,
0: honestly, like if she, if Agatha Christie ever did that again, I, I don't think that her publishers would have accepted the manuscript, <laughs> so... Alright, Catherine, let's talk about the world as it appears to be.
1: Dr. Riley is a civil doctor, and he has been approached by his old friend, Dr. Leidner, but Leidner's wife, Louise, who is apparently having a case of, I guess, the nerves. She has fancies an interesting way of putting it but basically she's jumping at anything that moves she appears to be afraid of strange men she has seen things so we find this out kind of retrospectively because Riley has written an introduction to the book that we're about to read explaining that the book is actually going to be the first person account that he has commissioned from Amy Leatheran who is a pretty you know solid seeming 32 year old English nurse who has come to Mesopotamia Because she's caring for a young pregnant woman or newborn. Either she'll go back to England or she could use some extra work. So she is the one that that picks up the narration.
0: Right. And essentially she's hired as a companion to Louise Leidner. Amy naturally assumes that she's a drug addict, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as I would have assumed too, And that everyone's just speaking in code. But when she gets to the dig site here and the house at Tell Urimja, it becomes very apparent that... Louise is the focus of some intense anger directed very specifically at her by a number of people in the house and that she's genuinely terrified that someone is coming for her that someone has it out for her. It's also quite clear that she may be justified in those fears because she's a bit harsh. Mm -hmm. Um, to those around her. And he picks up on the fact that she really says rude things and makes enemies of people, much like Catherine Woolley. It becomes clear that something has changed in the atmosphere in the house and that everyone is more or less walking around on eggshells. Amy Leatherin, after hearing all the sorts of stuff from everyone at the dig, she does eventually get this tale of romantic loss from Louise, who tells her how when she was a young young woman, she had been tremendously in love with a devoted husband. This was her first husband, Frederick Bosner, But then it turned out that Frederick bosner he was a German spy, actually. He was spying on behalf of the Germans. So she thought that it was her patriotic duty to turn him in and blow the whistle on him. Even though she loved him, she just... She just had to do it. He ended up being hauled away and then killed in the war. But it's odd because he wasn't executed. He didn't die in battle or anything like that. He actually managed to escape from the authorities only to die in a train crash. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's a little bit of a squirrely death going on in an Agatha Christie novel, that is definitely a red flag right there. And Frederick Bosner had apparently a somewhat disturbed younger brother who was devoted to his brother and very upset at what Louise did, turning in his brother and then his his brother subsequently dying. So as Louise goes on in her life and tries to move on and meets other men, she starts getting these creepy letters that are reminding her that she had been married and that Frederick was the love of her life and that she is going to come to harm if Mm. she ever even tries to find happiness again with anyone else. And this happens time and time again.
1: For years and years and years. And so finally, Louise meets Dr. Leitner, who is a very respected Swedish-American archaeologist and falls in love with him. And he is passionately in love with her. And um, surprisingly, the letters actually stop.
0: Life is good, right?
1: Until until very close to the beginning of the plot of this book, which is the reason for her nerves, because all of a sudden the letters have started reappearing and now with a greater sense of threat. So she's basically convinced that her dead first husband's weird younger brother is coming to murder her.
0: Or that her husband isn't actually dead and is trying to come after her. Correct. She doesn't really know what's happening, but she thinks it's one of those two possibilities. And the last letter was the the creepiest and most alarming because it wasn't even sent through the post as all the other letters had been. It was just like left for her and it said, I have arrived. Right. (laughs) Super creepy. And there's all this speculation that perhaps Louise Leidner is such a nerve case that she's even writing the letters Word to herself. Yeah. But you know what? Louise Leiter gets murdered. Ah, gets conked over the indeed. head.
1: It's sort of set up by her increasing paranoia. In large part, she's like hearing scratching on the walls. Most importantly, she's convinced she sees a dead face against her window in the dark of night. So mm-hmm. this is right before she's found murder. Her
0: husband finds her in their bedroom. She's been bashed in the head. It's all very mysterious. And this is when we meet Captain Maitland, who is the investigator. And also at this point, and I wrote the page number down, page eighty seven. Yeah. Is when is we he- get Mr. Poirot in this novel. Too late. I'm sorry. That's that's a third of the way through the novel. I was missing my dear Hercule at this point. But he um, turns out to be an old friend of Doctor Riley. He's a specialist and this is a strange sort of a case and he's drawn to it Amy Leatherman makes much of and I actually appreciated this she as the narrator and protagonist of the story, since she's writing it, after all, she talks about how she begins to think of herself as the nurse to Poirot's doctor, mm-hmm. and she's aiding him in his specialist uh, routine as he's going through and trying to figure out this very, very confusing murder because before Poirot really gets there, everyone tries to pretend that, well, clearly some outsider just murdered this poor woman, but Poirot says, no, no, no. Well, doc- you know, it's
1: Dr. R- Riley, who is really the one who is like, no, I don't think so. I think, yeah, I think the call is coming from inside the house. So to speak.
0: Exactly. They realized that due to the architecture of the room and the position of the various players that were at the dig, and again, Agatha Christie was specific about. The placement of the rooms. We get a diagram. I love a diagram in a, in a mystery novel. Obviously. And she even, very unusually for her, is extremely specific about the placement of the furniture in the room. I don't think we've gotten this specific since actually the murder of Roger Ackroyd, where that did turn out to be extremely important and it's important once again here where the furniture is in the actual room and where everyone was positioned in the courtyard and outside and on the roof. It's impossible for anyone to have come in and come out who wasn't part of this cast of characters. And before we get to the clues, we did get this great comment from one of our faithful listeners. I will give him credit. His name is Scott Ratner. Hello, Scott. Who commented about. The fact that we've been misusing a term from the beginning of this podcast, Mysterious Era Styles was a locked room mystery because the victim in that novel was literally in a locked room <laughs> and her bedroom was locked. But the locked room mystery is a very specific subset of a larger subgenre of crime, which is the quote unquote closed circle. And in a closed circle, what that means is that we basically have some sort of isolation that means that um, this cast of characters, these people that you've been introduced to, are the only ones who could have done it. Most famously, we haven't gotten to it yet, but obviously, and then there were none. They're on an island, so no one could get on or off it. In Death in the Clouds, they were on a plane, but... It really is correct to be calling those mysteries closed-circle mysteries, not locked-room mysteries. It's only locked-room mysteries if if the victim is literally in a locked room. But there is an even smaller subset of these closed-circle mysteries, and we have an example of that here, which is exciting because it's unusual for Christie, and that is the quote-unquote impossible crime. And that is where, just as here, it seems impossible. It seems impossible that anyone undetected could have gone into the bedroom and killed Louise Leidner and gone out of it again. It's it's unclear physically, how this crime could have happened. And the most famous instance of this is the dead body in the snow with no footprints leading to or away from the body. John Dixon Carr, almost all of his novels are impossible crimes. Christy, actually, most of her novels aren't. Almost all of them are closed circle crimes, and many of them are locked room, but only some of them are impossible crimes, and here we have one. So it's it's actually kind of fun. I mean, in the world as it, as it appears to be, it, it seems impossible. It's like, I don't know who killed Louise Leiter, because it, it seems like it, no one could have. So that's where we are until we get to our clues.
1: Well, so I mean, the big clues, because we're giving them very much upfront, it's the letters. It's not ultimately the solution to how the murder is committed, but it is certainly the solution as to why. Originally, it's unclear if perhaps the letters are real, right? There is this element that perhaps Louise has been sending them herself. But uh, let's assume that. They are real. That means that some psycho was sending her threatening letters for basically, what, 10 or 15 years? Yeah. And now they're back again. So the options are it's either her sending them to herself, it's her dead husband's brother who's now shown up in Iraq, or it's her not actually dead husband. The deduction here actually should be, should at some level go to simplicity. What seems the most obvious answer? Who has the most reason to be sending her the letters? There's basically one option as to who seems the most likely, and that is clarified even further by... I think, our second clue, which is the timing.
0: Right. The timing of the letters is the real crux of the overall letters clue, I think. And it's ingenious because the letters came every time she got close to another man Mm -hmm. who was not her husband. But then when she got close to Eric Leidner and even, in fact, married him, there were no letters. Why? Why? Why did the letters stop when it came to Eric Leidner? And then... Why did the letter start up again after her marriage to Eric Leidner? And I defy even the astute reader to get to the solution here because it is ludicrous. (laughs) And we will talk about that. Then we do have a major sort of red herring here, right? Yes, a huge um, red herring confusing things. There's this whole side plot with the Antica Room which is where the artifacts are kept that they have dug up right. at the site and there's scratching in the room and Louise hears the scratching and people run into the room and Father Lavigny is there and there's a bit of wax on one of the artifacts when it's being shown to Amy Leatheran and this all basically comes down to a side plot in which Father Lavigny is not Father Lavigny, he's impersonating him and he's a thief. And he has a a partner in crime who is this mysterious Iraqi that has been lurking about the house and who people, you know, Louise thought that maybe he was her first husband slash her husband's brother. Other people thought he had something to do with the murder. He doesn't. It's Father Lavigny's accomplice. And that takes up a lot of pages.
1: Yeah, it so let's a- <laughs>
0: dispense with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, it, is the, it is the explanation to why she also, though, is increasingly paranoid. It's like a little bit like yeah. she's being gaslit. And she, she is being gaslit, although not actually through that completely unrelated side plot.
0: Right. It's an unfortunate buttress to the main gaslighting that's, right. that's <laughs> happening for her. She's
1: being double gaslit. Right. We have to talk about the diagram of the house. Yep. The windows. The single most important element is where the windows are located in the house.
0: Most of the windows are, in fact, facing the courtyard. There's two big bedrooms, which are Mrs. Leiter's room and Father Lavigny's room, which are these kind of corner bedrooms. And the windows in those rooms face outside, which means that People who are in the courtyard, and there were a whole lot of people in the courtyard when this murder was committed, in and out. They cannot see anything that's happening on the window side of Mrs. Leiter's bedroom.
1: Right. The two in Louise's room, we are told after she is found that they were bolted and barred. However, we don't see that, right? Because we're in Amy Leatheran's narration.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That is significant. Because... We talked about it seems like the impossible crime, right? Going in and out of this room. No one could have committed this crime by going in and out because they would have been seen. The door was within sight at all times by someone. Mm -hmm. But doors aren't the only way in and out of a room. Windows are as well.
1: Right. And I mean, I, again, I think it's really important here that we don't actually get to see the condition of the windows. We Mm -hmm. are told. Right. And that's always, that's always a bad sign.
0: Right. This happens a lot in Christie. Don't trust secondhand information. Don't even trust firsthand information based on one sense. Like if you just hear something but don't see it, it might not be true. So in this case, it's secondhand. So perhaps the windows were not actually closed when this murder was committed. Uh, And then clue number five. And we have Papa Poirot. We know, we know he's always got one eye on the love making going on in any, <laughs>
1: always among
0: <laughs> any cast of characters. Richard Carey, the aforementioned tanned, blue eyed, lean, brown gentleman, he is deeply unhappy. But deeply handsome as well, he and is. Um, he seems to be incredibly tense mm-hmm. in his relationship with Louise Leidner. They call each other Mrs. Le- Mrs. Leidner and Mister Carey. And hmm, do we think that that's because they actually really don't <laughs> like each other, or maybe they're totally in love and having crazy sex all over the place?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that if you want to pair that up with our previous clue about why the letters might have restarted. Hmm,
0: that might get us closer to the earth-shattering, shocking resolution here. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about
1: this resolution. So, uh, frankly, all of the clues and everything that we have talked about happens before the midway point of the book. Yeah. And everything else in the book is essentially rehashing everything that we just talked about. So, Quaro shows up. He basically reinterrogates the entire house. Almost all of it is red herring.
0: There's a lot of puttering and inconsequential action. I will say this for it, though, because it reminded me of three-act tragedy, actually. And as Catherine knows, I'm a big fan of that book. However, I think the worst aspect of that book is that middle part where we're doing all of that interviewing about the Reverend Babington murder, which turns out to be totally irrelevant. And it's not that interesting. I don't think it's very interestingly portrayed. Because we have a first-person narrator here we've never seen before who has a personality—I didn't particularly like her, but she does have a personality—I found it very easy to get through. So I will say that about it. It's, It's inconsequential, and we don't need to really talk about it more than to note that it's there. But I didn't find it painful to read. No, I thought it was done rather well, especially in comparison to others that we've read recently. But in any case, we we basically get to the point where, not Poirot, but actually Miss Anne Johnson is Mm -hmm. the one who has a revelation. We are not privy to her revelation, but she's standing on the roof. She looks extremely upset. She's shaken. And she tells Poirot that she thinks she understands what happened. And unfortunately for Anne Johnson, the murderer overheard that, and the murderer switched out the glass of drinking water she kept on her bedside table with a nice big tall glass of hydrochloric acid, (laughs) and she just drank half of that glass down in one go, uh, which is apparently her her habit in the middle of the night, and as she's literally burning to death on the inside, she manages to choke out the words The Window uh, to Amy Leatherin. Who's trying to help her? I believe she she like pours olive oil down her throat That's one of the things that she that she tries to do to help this poor woman and Amy, of course, thinks that she means Miss Johnson's own window, which like all of the regular bedrooms faces the courtyard, and she's just talking about how someone was able to stick their hand in through the window and switch the glasses. But no, as we mentioned, it's Louise Lyder's window, and that window is very much key to how Louise was killed because Here's how it happened, folks. <laughs> Louise was lying in bed, right? She was she was having a little siesta and this ghoul mask that had been tapping on her window at night when when it looked very scary, apparently, was... And it happened, um,
1: like, just the night before.
0: Yeah, and so the, the same mask now does not look scary in the bright light of day, but that mask was lowered onto her window and tapped. She saw it, and as anyone would do who had been very much scared by this ridiculous mask, she was indignant, and she ran to the window, and she stuck her head out of the window, and the mask was being lowered from above... And she looked up, and at that point, a huge stone quern, I believe is is what it's called. I was not clear on what it was until I watched the Suchet adaptation, actually. Yeah, although
1: I, then I was like, is it like a cistern? I was also slightly unclear as to what It's a huge
0: stone with a hole in the middle. It's basically like a donut made of stone. Correct. A massive donut made of stone. That falls down from the roof, hits her in the head, and that is actually how she was bludgeoned on the head. Of course, she would have crumpled right in front of the window, and that is not where she was found, which means that the person who rearranged her body was the person who killed her, and also the person who happened to be on the roof the entire time that we were trying to puzzle over how she would have been murdered, and that person is...
1: No, <laughs> no, Frederick Posner, who Frederick is Boesner, actually... The well, well, Eric Leidner. Eric Leidner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> her, her husband... Twice, and this is where we get to the worst part of this novel and it 's really bad it 's really like, bad
1: it 's an incredibly bad solution
0: I just want to quote real quick here the our esteemed Christie colleague, John Curran, because I was perusing his book, Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks, as I do from time to time. He wrote, um, Murdered Mesopotamia misses being a first-class Christie due to the unbelievable revelation during Poirot's explanation of an unsuspected relationship. The mechanics of the murder are extremely ingenious, the setting and the characters are better drawn than usual, I don't know if I agree with him on the character part, and the identity of the killer is undoubtedly a surprise, but the reason for the crime beggars belief how Christie or her editor ever thought this was a likely or even a credible scenario is difficult to imagine. Because what this means is that Frederick Bosner 15 years later married the same woman who had no idea that it was her first husband no
1: clue she had no, no clue. clue
0: come on this isn't like face off this isn't a face off situation <laughs> no, I did th- you
1: know I seriously very much thought about face off
0: for years I've, I've been watching him tracking him studying his every every move I know his every every mannerism every facial tick gesture I know him better than he knows himself And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. I mean, hats off to to Face Off because once you get past the Face
1: Off is one of my favorite movies. I'm not even kidding.
0: Because laying, uh, like, a slab of face over a different <laughs> bone structure is sure going to work out really well. Yes, yeah, well, and also, so believable.
1: although, But, you know, I'm just going to point this out. The most unbelievable aspect to me in face off is not even the face taking off it's the body transformations between Nicolas Cage and John Travolta and then right. the fact that Joan Allen does not seem to realize that it's not her husband after she finally agrees to have essentially like some intimate Moments Mm -hmm. later in the movie. Maybe the Louise Leidner comparison with Catherine Woolley is accurate because maybe they did not. Never had
0: intimate relations. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Maybe that's the missing the missing we cracked it. Catherine that's the missing (laughs) ingredient here to make this novel work which clearly Agatha Christie had in the back of her mind I mean it's just it's absurd otherwise but yeah Frederick Bosner actually is as Eric Leidner and he I also I do find the mechanics you know and this happens often with these impossible crime mysteries I mentioned John Dixon Carr I do love I do love his novels and I love figuring out the impossible solutions but often the murderer had to get so incredibly lucky for it to all work out and here too it's like dropping a huge stone so that it hit her head in the right way so that it seemed as if she was being bludgeoned rather than some more massive damage or missing her or
1: it's not not the
0: most foolproof way to to murder someone. It's ingenious, but
1: not only that, but it's lower, like lowering the mask repeatedly on a string (sighs) when there are a bunch of people around.
0: Well, but again, this is the window that faces outward, so no one can see this. So there is Provided at
1: least Provided nobody at any point was outside and thought, gee, why is there a guy hanging over the edge of a roof with know, a rope and a mask?
0: Yeah, it's all, it's all a bit ridiculous, but that does solve the issue of the timing of the letters. Obviously, the letters stopped because Frederick Bosner got his wife back, and then the letters started again because Louise Leidner and Richard Carey began an affair. Correct. And that is ultimately why she was killed, because of this affair that she was carrying on with Mr. Carey.
1: So we should talk about the adaptation, which makes a bunch of changes.
0: Yes. I will be, though, transparent about this. Before I watched the adaptation, I looked up David Suchet's thoughts on the adaptation, and he was not a fan, actually. This was a short season when they did Murder of Mesopotamia and Evil Under the Sun, and he actually thought that the um, show, that it had stagnated a bit was its eighth season felt like they were treading water or kind of resting on their laurels and in reading that i'm sure i was affected by that when i watched it but i I kind of get what he's saying it's not it's a there's something a little lackluster and stagnant about this adaptation there's a lot of
1: weird framing happening in the episode yeah that's that's probably the most significant change i mean the most significant change is that we have hastings
0: Right, which sidelines Amy Leatherin, and Amy Leatherin is one of the most interesting elements of the novel. So
1: Definitely so. And, then and this also, isn't a great
0: Hastings episode. So
1: Oh, well, he's kind of humiliated in it. I mean, not that he's not occasionally humiliated in some of the earlier versions, but this is uh, something about it is almost off-putting. It seems like always a little bit in good fun or he is slightly in on it, especially in earlier seasons, you know?
0: Yeah. And
1: this doesn't really come across like that. I also thought the runner with the awkwardness between Hastings and Cinderella was not great. Hastings, is it not true that your wife requested that you should leave? Well, that's true, but... And that she requested that you should leave not only your home, but the continent in which it is situated? Yes, but just for a holiday. She felt she needed a bit of a break. Then perhaps you were kind not to presume to lecture me as an expert on the psychology of women. There's also a really weird running thread in the entire episode about the romantic life of
0: I know, with Vera Vera Rosikoff actually sent for him, and that's why they're even in the area, and it's supposed to be funny, and at the end, you know, he's constantly checking in with the hotel, saying, has has Vera Rosikoff left a message for me? And the the concierge keeps on saying no, and then finally he says yes, and the message is, can you pay my bill? And she never actually shows up, and it's just, it's needless, and it seems cheap, especially for this series, which is normally so smart and so Mm -hmm. streamlined about his romantic backstory i.e. that one episode in the taco box where it was beautifully handled and i was actually shocked when i watched this i must have watched it at some point years ago but i had i never thought that they actually went there in that y- way
1: yeah i found it off-putting
0: on the other hand we did get a jaunty arab sort of version of the poirot theme <laughs>
1: That's true. That is a thing that happened. Um, I mean, as always, I thought it was beautifully shot. So. It was beautifully
0: shot. It was filmed in Tunisia. I hate pinpointing actors for criticism because it doesn't seem entirely fair, especially because these things are such an ensemble effort. But I do think that a lot of what makes the novel work is buying into the character of Louise Leidner and I actually do think that Christy pulls off making her convincingly charismatic and enigmatic and fascinating and as I went on at great length, I think that's partially due to the fact that she's based on a real person who she knew quite intimately. I did not think that the performance by the actor in this adaptation captured that fascination in any way whatsoever and that no. was a problem.
1: I, I rarely say this about the adaptations, but I actually didn't like the majority of the performances in the episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's just there's something... Um, something also, is the, off,
1: tonally, in this episode. Something's and
0: off. And Suchet also also noted this, so I was primed for it. But the Denouement scene, and by the way, those were always his pet peeve because they were such a bear to memorize and perform. Right. But the Denouement scene is about 20 minutes long in this adaptation. It is insanely long. It has flashbacks, and it never ends. He just wasn't a fan of this episode overall. So a rare misstep, I think, within the uh, Agatha Christie's horror series. Yeah, we normally
1: love them. And I mean... I, and I will say this, we can do this to transfer into talking about rankings, but my thoughts on this would be, it was a rare misstep, and this was a book that I did not mind reading, but I thought was a massive misstep in how it's resolved.
0: Yes, let's talk about the rankings. And we've kind of, I think, already had the conversation that we need to have about plot mechanics and plot credibility. And I think we agree here that... The mechanics are impressive. I don't think they're the most ingenious plot mechanics in a Christie novel, but they're impressive. This is, and and as I mentioned, this is an impossible crime situation, and she does give us an ingenious solution that makes sense. And that I didn't see coming, and even though the murderer has to be lucky that it all works out the way it does, when it comes to solving impossible crimes, this is by no means the most ridiculous solution at all. It actually is probably pretty much on the reasonable end of things. So right. um, I think Mechanics, she does really well. And Catherine, you, were, you came out at a 7 on this, and I, I, I would I would support that. I'd probably do a little bit lower, but I, I'll support a 7.
1: <laughs> Let me put it this way. I was trying to be balanced in my ultimate opinion, I can do lower two. We can do a six. I would...
0: Let's do do a six, and since we're having, you know, this is all playing out as we're having the conversation, we can adjust if need be, because I would also, I think, adjust some of our other categories a little bit lower, so if we feel that we need to readjust, we can, but a six feels right to me. I
1: was trying not to be unkind, because I know that sometimes I end up the harsher critic at the end of these. All right, so we'll say a six, and then... Yeah,
0: we'll say a six, and then plot credibility is just just, terrible, Just just dreadful.
1: I... I, I can't. <laughs> like, I can't. No. 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 I, I told you this, Kemper, but I saw over the holidays one of my close childhood friends. And while I have talked to her consistently for all this time, we realized we had not seen each other in 20 years. Right. And... You know, there is Facebook now, which there was sure. not There was not in the time of murder in Mesopotamia, but I would this have recognized true. her. You don't change that much, and especially you don't change if you're a grown adult.
0: No, it's, it's, no it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. She sacrificed credibility for an ingenious solution to the story but sacrifice that she did. So uh, three is exactly right, I think, which is, by the way, really low. The only thing that was lower was the big four, and this is the same credibility as the seven dials mystery, why didn't they ask Evans, and the secret adversary. So, And I
1: would be honest. I would say that the seven dials mystery and why didn't they ask Evans have better credibility than this.
0: No, you're right. You know what? Let's, let's, let's see how this shakes out. Let's say two, because it's... I'm sorry, but, it, but it's warranted. So, and this is where I won't be, I, maybe I won't be as harsh on this as I was going to be, but series-long characters, obviously, we just have Poirot here because in the novel, there's no Hastings, there's no Jap. And we don't get Poirot until page 83, which right. bothers so me late. when we get him so late. That being said, there are good Poirot moments, and I do appreciate the relationship that Amy Leatherin strikes up for the reader with Poirot, and even seeing Poirot through her eyes because she has no context for him, which is rather amusing. She says that he looks like a hairdresser in a mm-hmm. comic play the first time that she sees him. Right. We get him talking about the being interested in, in the love affairs of young people. And One thing that bothered me, there's this weird section in which Poirot expounds on Mrs. Leidner's character, which he says from the get-go is, the, is crucial for the solving of this mystery, and indeed it is. But he gets her character from the books that she reads on her shelf, and it is so specific and just Kind of a weird, like I don't know if you can really tell someone's personality that specifically from the books that they're reading, and that just seemed a little. What
1: not you don't you, you don't think Kemper is that horror. you can solve a crime based on our interest in uh, Christie novels? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Based on our joint interest in Christie novels and my preference for Jane Eyre versus your preference for Wuthering Heights, right? I mean, I guess if there's a crazy person locked up somewhere, I did it, and if it's like a crime of passion, you did it. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's just ridiculous. Like, it's just it. It see it just seems like a cheap ploy for Monsieur Poirot in a novel. So that bothered me. But it was really the lateness of his appearance that bothered me.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, I think it is actually really odd to read it too because you keep thinking, well, where's Poirot? Where's
0: Poirot? He does mention, by the way, that he's coming from Syria where he was disentangling some military scandal, which totally made me think of the Kenneth Branagh prologue to Murder on the Orient Express. Hey. Look at that.
1: Textual
0: uh, (laughs) source for that.
1: Apparently (laughs) so.
0: That's why I would come out on a six. Seven feels high to me. It just doesn't feel like a very strong Poirot novel.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I to so many I mean, others. L- listen, I mean, I think that's fine.
0: Book-specific characters... It's funny, the book does well and badly at the same time. I think we talked about the interchangeable male archaeologists and (laughs) so many of those male, like none of the male characters are well-drawn. They're kind of described in the beginning and then just, you you know, every time their name comes up, I'm like, who is that again? Which one? Is that the British one or the American one or the loud one or the quiet one? The uh, fact that
1: Eric Leidner is not well-drawn is actually one of the Bigger issues, and I mean, I guess yeah. the, I guess Good the issue, point. I guess the issue there is if he were well drawn, I suppose his personality would have been more distinct, and maybe she would have recognized her husband. <laughs> right.
0: But Amy Leatherin, I didn't like her, but I well, she's, um, um,
1: there's some real lady on lady backbiting in this.
0: She definitely is very harsh on members of her own sex.
1: Oh, that was way harsh, Ty.
0: But I wasn't sure if the sort of colonialist prejudices and xenophobia that she was exhibiting were Christy poking fun at a person like her or just her merely sharing Christie's foibles herself. This
1: is a very good question, and unfortunately, it's related to our final score topic. Stuck in
0: we can discuss both at the same time. Sure, let's do it.
1: Let's do it. Some of it is deeply problematic. But it's incredibly hard to tell whether or not it's Christy being problematic or Amy being problematic. Because some of it is poking fun at her.
0: As a provincial nurse who finds herself in the Middle East. Who's never been
1: overseas.
0: Right. And at this point, Christy herself was a seasoned traveler. I mean, she had traveled around the world. She had been to the Middle East numerous times. So I think we kind of have to give her the benefit of the doubt. On that, By the way, my favorite moment of casual racism is not even racism toward Arabs, but racism toward Arab dogs, which are described as always being timid.
1: <laughs> it's like, are they always timid, though? There's also like- a line in there from somebody else in the house that you have to um, scream at the Arabs because otherwise they can't understand your English or your accent.
0: Oh, boy. Even early on, the way that Amy Leatherin wonders if Mrs. Leiter's nerve problems aren't due to nervousness about natives and colored people, I'm honestly not sure if that is Christy poking fun or Christy just making a statement.
1: I'm you know? not sure either. I do think
0: we have to give her the benefit of the doubt, though, for the Amy Leatherin stuff. And there's a lot of that. However, there's another separate category of stuck in its time that I found very problematic. And this is actually coming from the lips of our dear Mr. Poirot and that is some problematic gender relations advice he gives at the very end of the novel. Mm. Specifically, quote here, (laughs) quoting here. It is against nature for a man to grovel. Women in nature have almost exactly the same reactions. Remember, it is better to take the largest plate within reach and fling it at a woman's head than it is to wriggle like a worm whenever she looks at you.
1: Yeah, I suppose if you want to deep dive into this, the crux of the plot, right, is that Eric... Leidner late Frederick Bosner was so infatuated and mm-hmm. devoted to his wife that's what it's over and over again said, how that how did he he lost
0: he's. her he lost her affections by making it too easy yes yeah, no, I know. And it's it's a portrayal of the way that affections work and relations between men and women that is extremely old-fashioned and problematic and stuck in its time, but also I feel like even for then...
1: I think it would have been stuck in its time by, then, uh, by, by the time this book was published yeah. in 1936. I'm pretty sure that that was not the general viewpoint about it. Wasn't, it
0: certainly wasn't at least prevailing it's not like oh everyone thought that so we'll we'll give her a pass for that no i that to me is the more problematic part that being said unlike some books i didn't have the bad taste in my mouth of these issues while i was reading well
1: no because especially it feels like you can write it off as this is Amy Leatherin versus Right. This is Agatha. Right.
0: I think we actually came out at exactly the same amount, which was deducting two. Is that am I making that up?
1: No, I think that that's right. We need to also give a score to Amy herself.
0: In terms of the book specific characters. When it comes to Amy, she's a great character. When it comes to most everyone else, they're not so great. I think a seven is too high. I think a six at All most. Right. But now let's talk about the final category since we did Suck into Time, which is setting a tone, because this is where the book shines. The book is... That's great. This is our first novel that we've gotten, and we're going to have several more that were set in the Middle East. And as much as we complain about the way that Christie portrays foreigners sometimes, and even foreign locales, when it comes to the Middle East, she often does it quite well. And I think this book is a prime example of that. What I actually loved is that very early on in the book, Amy Leatherin comes out and says, and this I'm quoting here, I think I'd better make it clear right away that there isn't going to be any local color in this story. And then, of course, she proceeds to give us a lot of local color. A lot of it is as to the archaeological dig, and you can really tell that Agatha Christie was on multiple archaeological digs and that this is something she knew. Like, we get this little tidbit about how when the workmen find gold on the site there, they get paid the weight and gold of any gold object they find so that they don't have an incentive to steal it. Right. There's a scene where, like, and this is totally foreshadowing for what happens to poor Miss Johnson, but there's a scene where we watch hydrochloric acid being poured over this mud-caked pottery and watching the dirt foam and boil away to reveal lovely colors and patterns. You can tell she saw that happening herself. We get Mr. K Harry, who's one of the archaeologists, trying to explain to her how you can feel with a mud pick where the walls are from the rest of the mud, and she's like, "I can't feel anything." <laughs> and you could, I could just see Christie being like, "I think you're making up where the walls are. I don't even know what's going on here." Like, I just, it felt real. Like the the location came alive to me. Tellurimja felt like a real place because it was based on a real place. So I, I love that.
1: No, I completely. Really good setting,
0: anyway, and the tone is great, especially because we have a first-person narrator, right? we've talked a lot about the Yeah,
1: tone. and we and, it's so. and a first-person narrator with a uh, distinct personality, even if we have some problems with it.
0: Right, a distinct personality and point of view, and it's consistent and it's believable. Yeah, setting a tone is is fantastic. I think an eight is totally right for that. Um, Absolutely, very very high. So let's tally that up and get a grand total here for Murder in Mesopotamia. We've got 6 plus 2 plus 6 plus 6 plus 8 minus 2 for a grand total of 26 points, which puts Murder in Mesopotamia in 12th place among our current 19 titles right after the man in the brown suit. Always a thrill to be able to say those words once more As
1: many times as we can mention it, apparently.
0: So right after the man, in the man in the brown suit and just before the Mysterious Affair Styles. And we usually do the top ten when we're counting out rankings on these episodes, but since we have a book now in the bottom nine, I'm going to read out ten through nineteen here. So no. in descending order, we've got the secret adversary, the man in the brown suit, murder in Mesopotamia, the Mysterious Serious of styles the murder on the links the mystery of the blue train why didn't they ask evans the seven dials mystery the big four and the secret of chimneys and those last two were tied for last place i will remind you i know Catherine was pushing hard for the big four to be in dead last place i
1: will always push for that and i mean i think <laughs> that I, I actually think that i dislike the secret of chimneys more than you do so that's saying something about the big four <laughs>
0: And by the way, I don't think it's spoiling much for Christie fans to say those are in dead last for now. Yes. We will <laughs> we we will reach some titles that will unseat those for dead last place. Let's just put that out there. So, that is Murder in Mesopotamia. Join us next time for something a little shorter, a little lighter, unless you're Catherine. I love
1: Miss
0: <laughs> And that would be a Miss Marble short story. Next within the Thirteen Problems is the four suspects. That is a Sir Henry Clithering tale. Oh,
1: exciting. Yeah, for
0: you. I wonder who might solve it for him. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> In the meantime, please, as always, feel free to contact us. We've had a bevy of people contacting us recently, and we really love it. So please do contact us via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com, or on Twitter, we're at allaboutthedame, or Catherine individually is at Robcat. We're on Facebook, our Facebook page is allaboutagatha, and we're also on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And please do take a moment to rate and review us wherever you are listening to this because it really does help other people find the podcast. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Bye.